The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Let's take our Bibles together and turn to the book of Acts again today, chapter 11. And while you are turning, I, for those of you who were not here at the church membership meeting last Sunday evening, uh, the meeting this evening will uh, be the meeting in which we will vote on the nomination of Grant Costanzo to be set aside as a commissioned minister, uh, church planter. And then there are also, uh, we had a three-month period uh, from the time he was nominated that our Constitution requires, and so we'll be meeting for that tonight. And also, there are a number of things I wanted to talk to the congregation about. Uh, that I think are important, so I hope that you'll make every effort to be here uh, for that meeting after the evening worship tonight. All right, Acts chapter 11, reading verses 19 to 30, and then we'll, we'll flip over to chapter 13 and read some of the opening verses of that chapter. Now, the, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarshish to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the earth, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now flipping over to chapter 13 where the narrative takes up with the church at Antioch again after addressing some other subjects. Now in the church that was at Antioch there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menahan who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent away by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come now to your holy word, we your word is precious to us. Where would we be without your word? 
Your word gives light. It gives us understanding of the world around us. It shows us the way of salvation. We pray now that you would grant that your spirit would come upon the preaching of the word. For our dependence is not upon the wisdom of men, the eloquence of the speaker. Our dependence is upon the Holy Spirit who works faith in the hearts of those that you have chosen in in the hearts of those who are your people. And we pray that you'd give us that faith, Lord, by the Spirit to believe your word and that you would instruct us by your word and shape our thinking and our feeling and our acting according to the Holy Scriptures in order that we might glorify you and glorify your Son, that we might enjoy all the benefits of your grace that you have so richly poured out upon us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. It's amazing, really, uh, the influence that one church can have uh, for the cause of Christ. I I read some time ago a brief historical overview of the influence of the church in Geneva, Switzerland, under the leadership of John Calvin. Prior to the Reformation, Geneva was infamous for its immorality. Among the wealthy city's common vices were drunkenness, disorderly conduct, gambling, prostitution, and adultery. On occasion, Genevans were known to run naked through the streets, singing vulgar and uh, sometimes even blasphemous songs. The city was also troubled by a lot of dissension in the form of what one observer described as ungodly and dangerous factions. And even after the governing body of the city voted to break with Roman Catholicism and to align the city-state with the Protestant Reformation, things were still bad. Without going into all of the details of how it happened, eventually John Calvin was called there as a pastor, and at first his preaching and his ministry proved to be very unpopular. In fact, within two years, he was relieved of his duties and banished to Strasbourg where he labored for a couple of years in the church there. And then in 1541, he was invited to return to Geneva. He did, and he remained there until his death in 1564. Calvin devoted himself to a rigorous schedule of preaching and teaching God's Word. Originally, he seemed to have preached twice on Sundays, once every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. At one point, he was relieved from preaching more than once on Sunday, but then later went back to preaching twice on Sunday. And from 1549, he also usually preached on every day of alternate weeks. In his public preaching, he followed a course of verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, book-by-book exposition. And this daily exposure to Calvin's faithful exposition of the Bible began to transform the hearts and the minds of Genevans. The entire city was dramatically changed. As the church's reputation grew, uh, Geneva became a a refuge for Protestants who were fleeing religious persecution from other parts of Europe. And in order to care for these refugees, a fund was established for Christian hospitality. A diaconate was organized to care for the needs of the poor, who were given opportunities to perform useful labor in the manufacture of clothing. A careful system was uh, established for the spiritual care of the church members. 
the pastors and elders of the Genevan church or churches, there were actually really three congregations that met uh, there in Geneva, and the elders of those churches met weekly together to resolve disputes and when necessary to address church discipline cases. Uh, Depending on the situation, these meetings can serve as a form of conflict resolution or even family counseling, we might call it. And when formal discipline was enacted, a major goal was to encourage genuine repentance, and, and this in time contributed to a drastic improvement in public morality. A school was established, the famous Geneva Academy, specifically for religious education and for the training of men to be ministers of the gospel. The academy helped Geneva to become a launching pad for missions, as many of the pastors who were trained there were sent out to evangelize France by planting new churches. In 1555, there was reported to have been only five underground Protestant churches in Roman Catholic-controlled France, only five of them. Well, in the official records of the archives of Geneva, there are hundreds of letters to and from Calvin and others to the underground church in France. And it's interesting that in just four years, by 1559, the number of underground churches had increased from five to 100. In seven years, in 1562, there were over 2,150 underground churches in France. That's the kind of influence Geneva had in the spread of the gospel. And that influence not only reached France, but throughout Europe and also in Great Britain. For example, during the reign of Bloody Mary in England, many of the Protestants fled to the continent, and they fled to Geneva for refuge. And there they saw firsthand what a healthy, strong, well-ordered, reformed church looks like. So that when Elizabeth came to the throne and many of them returned to England, they returned with a vision for a further reformation of the churches there. And these were the seeds of what came to be known as the Puritan movement in England. To where does it trace its roots? Geneva. The same is true of the Reformation in Scotland. But we could go on with this. The influence of that church for the gospel is almost beyond belief. It's still being felt today. It stands as a testimony to the tremendous impact for the cause of Christ one church, one or one fellowship of churches can have. And there have been other churches like this in church history. You can probably think of some in our own generation that have had an unusually widespread influence for the kingdom. Well, as we focus our attention again today for a third time, to the planting of the church at Antioch, we are confronted with a church that eventually will exert an impact for Christ that was much like that of Geneva, perhaps even greater than Geneva. And let me just briefly remind you of what we learned about the city of Antioch itself in a previous message. It was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem in what is now southeastern Turkey. It was the third largest city in the known world at the time, behind Rome and Alexandria, which was in North Africa. It was an unusually cosmopolitan city with a tremendous mix of peoples and cultures. The population was made up of Greeks, Syrians, Phoenicians, Jews, Arabs, Persians, Egyptians, and Indians. It was also notorious for being a morally corrupt 
city. I gave you some examples uh, to demonstrate that a few weeks ago. Antioch, in other words, was a place in many ways like South Florida. A highly populated, ethnically diverse, morally corrupt place. But it was there that God in his sovereign mercy and purpose raised up a church. What was to become a strong, healthy, vibrant church with a gifted plurality of leaders and a zealous vision for church planting and missions. Well, as most of you know, we as a church are prayerfully beginning an effort to see a new church planted an hour north of us. And in light of that, I thought it would be a good time to give a brief series of messages related to this subject of church planting as we see it in the book of Acts and particularly in the planting of the church at Antioch. And there's much to be learned about this, but also just to learn here at Emmanuel about some of the characteristics of a healthy, Christ-centered, missions-minded church. But now, how did this church begin? Well, we saw a few weeks ago that there were basically three simple factors involved in the origin of this church. The first factor was a violent persecution of the church at Jerusalem that that led to the scattering of believers into various regions, some of them ending up in this large cosmopolitan, mainly Gentile city of Antioch. So the thing that first brought Christians to Antioch was providential circumstances that had scattered them there. And then there were two other factors in the origin of the church. The second factor was these unnamed witnesses who went there, were told that these scattered Christians were preaching the word. Some of them who were originally from Cyprus and Cyrene took the bold step of speaking to the Hellenists, the Greeks, Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus. And then the third factor was the divine blessing upon their witnessing activities as we're told in verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So these were the factors involved in the origin of what was soon to become the first Gentile church. And last week, if you were here, our focus was on uh, the investigation and the endorsement of this new church plant by the church at Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem gets word that something is happening up in Antioch with these brothers and sisters who had been scattered there. So they send Barnabas there to check things out to evaluate the situation, to provide oversight and ministry to these people. So we pointed out that in its early beginnings, this fellowship of Christians was accountable. It was accountable to a sound, already established body of believers. And that's a very important principle. It's churches that plant churches. It's not just an individual gets it in his head, I want to go plant a church. But church planting is the work of churches. And so there's accountability and there's oversight. And that's what we see throughout the book of Acts in the planting of the church in Samaria and here in Antioch and beyond. And now last week our focus was on the person that the church in Jerusalem decided to send up there. This man named Barnabas, and we considered what we're told about his character, particularly as someone who was an encourager of God's people. So that's a review. But now in our time today remaining, I I want us to begin to look more closely at this new church plant. Here we have what we might call a model church in many respects. We have an example of what will become a strong, healthy, missionary church that had a tremendous impact for the cause of Christ. And as such, it's a church that we can learn a lot from. As we examine this church, my prayer 
is that it will help to further shape and to sharpen our own vision for us as a church here at Coconut Creek, Florida, and also for the church we are hoping to plant up north. Now, as I've studied this church and considered all that we're told about it in the book of Acts, there are at least seven characteristics that I've identified from the text of a God-glorifying, spiritually maturing, spirit-controlled, world-impacting church that I see here. Or to simplify, we might call this uh, seven marks of a healthy kingdom-expanding church. I trust that's what we want to be. That's what we want this church plant to be. Now, now I'm not saying that we have here an exhaustive picture of everything that ought to be true of a church. I'm well aware that there's a popular book entitled Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. In fact, that's a little book that we ask uh, those who apply for membership in our church to read uh, before we have our membership interview with them. It's an excellent book. Someone else may write a book one day entitled 10 Marks of a Healthy Church or 12 Marks of a Healthy Church or maybe 5 Marks of a Healthy Church. There are a number of things that are important to having a healthy church, and those things can be subdivided in, in you know, a variety of ways. But again, my purpose is not to argue that here we have an exhaustive picture of everything a church ought to be or strive to be, but to say that here we have a picture of several very important things that every church should seek to imitate, things that I sometimes, as we get into this, uh, some of the initial ones won't be that way, but some that we're going to get into later that are often forgotten and left off of lists of marks of a healthy church that I hope we'll see in the church in Antioch. We have a picture of some of the characteristics of the kind of church that glorifies God. It has a substantial impact in the world for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, again, there are seven of them I want to open up. Obviously, we're not going to have time to cover all of them today after that long introduction. In fact, we'll only have time to consider one of them this morning. So we'll get started this morning. God willing, we'll cover the rest or a good chunk of them next time, and we'll try to finish all of this before we get through Christmas break, God willing. And the first one, the one we're going to look at today, is that the church in Antioch was built upon and devoted to the public ministry of the Word of God. Built upon and devoted to the public ministry of the Word of God. Faithful preaching and teaching of God's Word to God's people was one of the priorities that marked this church, and as such, it became a well-grounded, well-taught congregation. Now, where do we see this? Well, look again at our passage here in Acts, where we're first introduced to this church after the persecution. Following the martyrdom of Stephen, many believers from Jerusalem are scattered to various regions. Some of them come to Antioch, and they're they're sharing the gospel there, and they witness to people about Christ. God blessed them. A great number believed, turned to the Lord, and Barnabas is sent from Jerusalem to check things out. Now, picking up at verse 23, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. So Barnabas is encouraging them and exhorting them to persevere in the faith. So Barnabas himself is seeking to teach them. And we read in verse 24 that many more people were added to the Lord. But Barnabas realized that he needed help. So, verse 25, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. 
So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. So in the context of the gathered church, Paul and uh, uh, Saul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, the same person, they taught them the word of God. They sought to ground them to establish them in the doctrines of the faith. This church was built upon and devoted to the public ministry of the word. And this comes out not only here, it was not only during this particular year that the ministry of the word was central in this church. When we turn to chapter 13, and Luke describes for us the leadership of the church as it had developed some years after this, how does he describe them? Well, he says in chapter 13, verse 1, now in the church that was in Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. And then he goes on to give a list of names. So the leadership in the church eventually is made up of a plurality of men who are gifted prophets and teachers. Now, without going into great detail right now about the precise definition and function of each one of these gifts or gifted men, all agree that prophets and teachers were men who preached and taught and proclaimed the Word of God. What do prophets do? They proclaim God's Word. What do teachers do? They teach God's Word. And again, this tells us that the public ministry of the Word was foundational and central in the life of this church. This was a well-taught congregation built by, built upon the public ministry of the Word. Now, this is absolutely crucial and foundational. This is the very thing Jesus calls us to in the Great Commission. You remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28. What is involved? He tells us to to make disciples of all nations, not just making decisions, but disciples, seeing men and women truly converted to Christ, putting their faith in Christ, becoming followers of Jesus Christ, making disciples. But that's not all the Great Commission is about. That's just part of the Great Commission. What follows? Baptizing them. Baptism ordinarily in Scripture is the initiatory rite by which we are introduced and brought in to the fellowship of the church. There are a couple of exceptions when there's not a church that exists in an area, but those are the only exceptions, really. Baptism is that rite by which a person publicly confesses their faith in Christ and are initiated into the fellowship of God's people, the church, making disciples. But then there's a third element to the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Someone's put it this way. The Great Commission involves bringing men into a right relationship to the Son of God, making disciples, into a right relationship to the church of God, baptizing them, into a right relationship to the Word of God, teaching them. And this, and this is the exact pattern that we see throughout the book of Acts. They took our Lord's Word seriously, and this is exactly what they did. They preached the gospel, and when sinners were converted, they baptized them, and they gathered them into local churches. And then, in the context of the gathered church, they taught them the word of God. And the apostles also appointed qualified pastors and teachers in the churches to shepherd God's people and to establish them in the doctrines of the faith. Well, this is what we see in Antioch again and again. This is what we see throughout the book of Acts. Back at the beginning, in the church in Jerusalem, what was their church life like? We get that little snapshot at the end of chapter 2, what the church life was in the church of Jerusalem, and we're told there that, quote, they were meeting, we're told they were meeting together, and that among other things, quote, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Why was the office of deacon appointed in the church? 
Acts 6, 3 to 4. There are a couple of reasons, but one reason is this. The apostles who were also elders of the church at Jerusalem said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men, the first deacons that we may set over these physical uh, material aspects of the administration of the life of the church, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What was Paul's practice in his missionary labors? He planted churches. And we find him gathering with those churches to teach them the word of God. For example, we read in Acts 18 that he remained in Corinth 18 months teaching the word of God among them. And we know as we were reminded this morning in Sunday school, he had his assistants, Titus and Timothy, that he would send to follow up in those churches after he left and went on to help organize them and get them established in the Word and establish elders and deacons in those church churches. When the church in Ephesus was planted in Acts 19, we're told there that Paul was meeting with the church and teaching daily in the school of Tyrannus and that he did that for two years. For two years he taught them daily. Now, there's a marginal note in one of the ancient manuscripts that suggests he actually did this for five hours each day. You had your siesta time in the middle of the day, so there was the morning time and there was the evening time. And there's this old ancient manuscript where someone put a notation in there that Paul did this for five hours a day. And there's good reason to think that's probably what he did. Obviously, that notation was a human notation. It's not part of the Bible, but it's there, and it's very likely there's some truth to that. Now, think about that. Let's do the math a moment. All right? If we count six days to a week, we'll give him a day off. All right? We count 40 weeks in a year, so we'll give him four weeks off each of those two years, eight total weeks off. You add that up, that makes 2,880 hours of biblical instruction that Paul gave during his two year stay in Ephesus. If you take some of you are like, oh, I don't know about it. Well, okay, like, I, I'm not a good math person, but I'll just have to prove it to you then, okay? I can see you. All right, you got 40 weeks, right? Five hours per week, right? Wait a minute. Five hours per day for 40 weeks. You multiply that out, and then you double that for two years' worth, and it comes out to 2,880 hours of biblical instruction. Now, Paul, I mean, uh, Tom, if I'm wrong, you can correct me, but I went over this over and over and over. I hope I got it right. <laughs> 2,880 hours, five hours a day, six days a week, 40 weeks in a year for two years. Now, when you think Pastor Smith took so many years to go through the book of Romans, Think about this. If you look at what Paul did, that's the equivalent of 2,880 sermons in a two-year period. That comes out based on our church having 104 meetings, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, during a year. It would take us 13 years to do that. That's how much time was spent by the Apostle Paul instructing the church. So if it took five years to get through Romans, that wasn't that bad, really. 13 years worth of, of instruction. And something like this seems to have been the common practice 
when it came to the early foundation days of a church plant. We see, it, we see this practice in the book of Acts. So I think we can assume something like this was the case here in Antioch when it emphasizes that Barnabas and Paul stayed there with them and taught them for a whole year. <laughs> and then, of course, after that, that kind of foundational year in the establishing of that church, the ministry of the Word continued to happen in the church throughout the years that followed, as indicated later in chapter 13. How many times they met, we don't know. So, so this is what we see in the book of Acts. And and Paul not only did this himself, but as a missionary, as I've said already, it was his, his practice to establish leadership in the church as he planted. Elders were ordained in the church to shepherd the flock and to feed the flock. And what was one of the qualifications that was necessary to serve as a pastor or elder in the church? 1 Timothy 3.2, they were to be men who were apt to teach, able to teach. Titus 1.9, we saw this morning, they must be men who, quote, hold fast the faithful word as they have been taught. They've been instructed themselves in sound doctrine and are able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So this is the kind of leadership that was established in the churches. Now, why is such importance given to this in the New Testament? If we're going to be an Antioch church, and if any church we may be used of God to plant is to become an Antioch-type church, why is it crucial that the church is built upon and devoted to the public ministry of the Word? Well, let me just mention several reasons. Each of these could probably be a sermon in itself, but I'll just survey some of these reasons. First of all, God's Word is the primary means used by the Holy Spirit in begetting divine life in the soul of a sinner and granting the gift of faith, bringing the heart to faith. James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. 1 Peter 2.23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God which lives and abides forever. As Puritan Stephen Charnock put it, the Word is the chariot of the Spirit, the Spirit, the guider of the Word. So it's by means of the ministry of the Word, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and risen and coming again. Uh, the, the, teaching of God, the teaching and preaching of God's Word is by that means that God brings sinners to faith in Christ. And as we see here in our context, our, our text continues to add to His church those who are being saved. But not only is it the word that is used to, in the begetting of divine life by the Spirit in the soul of a sinner, secondly, it's also the primary means in the nurturing of that life in the child of God. It's by the sincere milk of the word that believers grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter 2, this is the way God has ordained it to be. There's no other way. Jesus prayed for his people. In John 17, he presented this petition, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. It's by the truth that God's people are sanctified. By what truth? What, where is that truth that sanctifies us? Your word is truth. This, there's this intimate connection in Scripture between sound gospel doctrine and holiness of life. The word is the primary means by which the Spirit produces both holy affections and holy practice. In God's people. Thirdly, and related to that, it's by the faithful ministry of the Word that God's people are brought to spiritual maturity. Turn over with me to 
uh, Ephesians chapter 4 for a moment. It's the ministry of the word by which God's people are brought to spiritual maturity. Verse 11, speaking of Christ, and he himself gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now, again, without getting bogged down, defining each of these gifts or gifted men, which are mentioned here, which are operative still in the church today or not, all of those kinds of questions. One thing is clear. These are all gifts involving the ministry of the word. And why does God give these gifts to the church? Why has he given to the church pastors and teachers? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And here we see that the teaching of sound doctrine to God's people is essential to their spiritual maturity, that we would no longer be children tossed about here and there with every thing that comes down the pipe, the latest false doctrine that may be blowing by, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ. God's people need to grow up, and they will never do so as they ought apart from the sound, faithful preaching and teaching of God's Word. Without it, at best, they will wallow in a state of weakness and immaturity. And then notice something else here in this passage. Fourthly, it's the ministry of the Word that equips the saints for works of service. Look again, picking up at verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, the translation here, I think, is not very clear. Paul actually uses in the Greek text two different Greek prepositions in verse 12. The first preposition, pros, for or toward the equipping of the saints. And then in the other two phrases, we have the preposition ace, unto the work of ministry, unto the edifying of the body of Christ. Actually, there's no article in the first phrase. It's not the work of ministry, but literally it could be translated a work of ministry or a work of service. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying that the ministry of the word, among other things, has in view the equipping of the saints for a work of service, and this for the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, one of the purposes and effects of the faithful ministry of God's word in the church is the equipping of God's people for works of service. As they grow and they mature under the ministry, God begins to equip them. For service. How do we cultivate an active church in which many people are serving? A church with many gifts that are being exercised for the good of the body. A church also out of which other ministers of the gospel are being raised up and qualified. Well, look at the church in Antioch. First, there was Paul and Barnabas. By the time we get to chapter 13, there's a whole bunch of leaders and preachers in the church so that two of them can actually be sent out now as missionaries. Well, what means does God use to produce that kind of church? Well, again, we see here in Ephesians 4, it's the public ministry of the Word by God-called, gifted, and godly men. And then there's one other thing mentioned in this passage, fifthly, 
It's the faithful, doctrinally sound ministry of the word that helps to prevent divisions and promotes unity in the church. Notice again, why has Christ given pastors and teachers to the church? For the equipping of the saints, unto the work of ministry, unto, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith. Now, up in the, the beginning of this chapter, he speaks of the unity of the spirit. And he says there's one body, one spirit, one Christ. There's these things that every believer has in common. And he says we are to maintain the unity of the spirit. But here he's talking about attaining something, the unity of the faith. Now, the word faith is sometimes used, of course, in the Bible to refer to the act of believing. But it's often used to refer to the sum of Christian doctrine, the gospel, and that body of truth which is to be believed by God's people. This is the case particularly when we have the article the before the word, the faith. So Paul's not talking here about the act of believing. He's talking about the body of Christian truth to be believed, the sum of Christian truth and doctrine, the faith. There's a body of truth that God's people are to be taught, a body of doctrine to be believed and, and loved and tenaciously held to by God's people. What Paul refers to in 2 Timothy 1.13 as the pattern of sound words or the pattern of sound teaching. We are to hold fast the pattern of sound teaching. So there's what the Bible refers to as the faith. The body of gospel truth and doctrine contained in the scriptures. And the concern here is that the church might come to the unity of the faith. That we might be more and more united as a, as a local church in what we believe and in our understanding of scripture. And what's the primary means God uses to increase this unity of the faith in the church? It's the public ministry of the word by faithful, gifted, God-called men. Now, this is the opposite of what some people seem to think. The careful teaching and preaching of sound doctrine divides people. It doesn't unite people, they tell us. We all just need to love Jesus and try to win the lost. Don't, don't bother me with all of your teaching and your doctrines. Well, my dear friends, such an attitude is really foreign to the New Testament. The New Testament tells us that false doctrine is what causes divisions and offenses in the churches, and it's sound doctrine that will strengthen and build up and unify the church. We've all know this by experience. Some of us know it's like to be in a church where people aren't taught anything and everybody believes something different. And some people are over here, some are over here, and some are over there. And it's a mess. But when there's the faithful teaching of sound doctrine, week in, week out, grounding the people in the Word of God. What does that do? It unifies the church so that we, we know what we believe as a congregation. We're all growing in our understanding of these things, believing the same things, speaking the same things. The more God's people grow together in their experience of the power of God's Word and truth upon their hearts, the greater will be their unity, partly because they'll be protected from false doctrines and false teachers who divide and devour Christ's sheep and also, sound teaching will tend to weed out those who are not really Christ's while drawing together in greater de degrees of unity and stability those who are. So these are some of the reasons. A healthy church will be a church that is built upon and devoted to the public ministry of the Word of God. This was the case with the church at Antioch. Read the history of Christianity 
And you'll find that this has always been the case. It's always been true of any church that has had a powerful impact on the world for the cause of Christ. And yet this is something that's being lost in our day. Some tell us or seem to have the idea that preaching is outdated. Let's, let's diminish the preaching as much as we can, make it as short as we possibly can, have as few teaching and preaching uh, elem, uh, uh, in, the, in the worship as we can have. Let's, whenever we have a chance to cancel it, let's do it. Let's cancel it and do something else. Uh, there's this pragmatic approach even to ministry. It's pragmatic philosophy to church growth, which assumes that the method and the manner and the focus of the church is to be determined by whatever it is that seems to work. To work in the sense that it brings the crowds and it causes the church to grow in numbers. That becomes the bottom line. I read some years ago about a church in a southern state in our country that believed in, quote, staging drama productions in the place of sermons. The associate pastor in charge of this said that drama, quote, is the most effective method of presenting the gospel to people today because they are so in tune to the visual. Regarding preaching, he said, we just got to find other ways to get them in. So this is the attitude that's all too common. The public preaching and teaching of God's Word doesn't work. We've got to find other ways to get people in. Well, brothers and sisters, if, if getting people in, whatever that means, is our great concern, that might be the case. But our great concern is not getting people, just getting people to come to church. It's to see people genuinely converted to faith in Christ and to see the people of God sanctified and established in the faith and equipped for works of service. And God has ordained the ministry of the Word as the primary means by which He does that. Well, as I bring all of this to a practical focus, what does this have to say to us who are here today? What does it have to say to us as a church? and as individuals. Three things I want to underscore. First of all, if God has ordained the ministry of the Word to be central in the life of the church, then all the members of the church need to be committed to this. We need to be devoted to this. And every member should be willing to accept and to protect this focus when it comes to their pastors, particularly those pastors that have been set apart by the church to labor full-time in Word and Doctrine. You remember back in chapter 6, this was the great concern when the first deacons were appointed. As the church grew, there began to, to be certain people began complaining about different things. A complaint arose because some of the widows were being neglected in the church. The church in Jerusalem was committed to taking care of the needy in the church. And as we're going to see, God willing, in a later message, so was the church at Antioch. Well, this involved taking care of the needs of the widows in the church. There was apparently some kind of daily allotment that was given from the common fund, uh, fund for the needs of qualified widows. Well, the charge was made that certain widows were being neglected. And it's not surprising. I mean, think about this. Just try to think about this. We were talking about this in one of our elders' meetings. Some of us were discussing this. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. They started out the 120 in the upper room. Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 souls are converted and added to the church. Now, you, can you imagine that? Now, they had, what, 12 apostles, so 12 elders to try to handle now 3,120 at least people that have come into the church. And in many ways, this must have been an administrative nightmare. And so you have this situation right now where 
there's some widows, particularly uh, some of the Grecian widows who felt like there was some favoritism toward the Hebrew widows, because, and probably the Hebrew widows were better known by the, the, peop- the, the, the people in the church there that were from Jerusalem, who not just had come there for the day of Pentecost, and maybe it's true there was some degree of neglect of the, the Grecian widows, and so they appointed the office of deacon uh, to, to take care of this situation. The situation had become tense. There was a groundswell of murmuring and complaining. The unity of the church was being seriously threatened. But here's the main thing we need to remember. How did the apostles respond to this administrative problem? Particularly, I want to focus on what they said. What they did, we all know. What they did is they, they appointed seven deacons in the church. So that's what they did. But why did they do it? Listen to what they said. Acts 6.2, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. It seems that it has been suggested that the apostles, who were also at that time the pastors of the church, should be spending much more of their time in this work. They should be running the, the food program. And certainly there must have been a temptation for the apostles here, but they didn't give in to that temptation. They understood what their particular role in the church was and what their focus was to be. They understood what must be the pro- their priority in the church and what must never be allowed to suffer for any reason. It is not desirable that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables, rather choose out other qualified men in the church who can be appointed over this business, first deacons. And then they say, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And brothers and sisters, I really believe that right here, the church was at a crossroads. A wrong step here would have had disastrous consequences. The decision of the apostles set a precedent for all future generations of the Christian church. And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, their decision was the right decision. And what was the result? Well, the very next verse says this. Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied. So my point is that every member, the whole church, must understand and seek to protect this focus when it comes to their pastors, particularly those pastors who are set apart to labor full-time in word and doctrine. Blessed is the pastor who has a congregation who understands this, and I'm thankful that we do have a congregation who understands this and has been committed to this for many, many years, and I thank God for that. Faithful, accurate, consistently edifying preaching takes much hard work and discipline. As Donald Gray Barnhouse once said, no man is ever going to be able to fill the pulpit adequately unless he spends thousands of hours year after year in the study of God's Word. And a young man once said to Barnhouse, I'd give the world to be able to to teach the Bible like you do. Looking him straight in the eye, uh, Dr. Barnhouse replied, good, because that's exactly what it will cost you. But then a second application. If God puts such importance upon the ministry of the Word, then this should affect the way every one of us listen to the Word of God when it is taught and preached to us. Certainly this means that we must listen to the ministry of the Word with an attitude of reverence, faith, and obedience. Did you know, brothers and sisters, that there is no higher act of worship than listening reverently and responsively when God's word is preached. People don't often think of preaching that way. You, you hear people say, well, we're going to have the worship, and then after the worship, we're going to have the preaching, as if the preaching part of the service is not worship. 
It's actually the highest form of worship. Mark Dever gives an example of this. He was teaching a day-long seminar on Puritanism in a church in London. At one point, he made the remark that Puritan sermons were sometimes two hours long. Well, a member of the, the class gasped audibly and asked, what time did that leave for worship? Endeavor says, clearly the individual assumed that listening to God's word preached did not constitute worship. I replied that many English Protestants in former centuries believed that the most essential part of their worship was hearing God's word in their own language, a freedom purchased by the blood of more than one martyr, and responding to it in their lives. Whether they had time to sing, though not entirely insignificant, was of comparatively little concern to them. Now, don't misunderstand. Every part of public worship, I believe, is important. And singing is a very important part of public worship. And we should seek that every part of our worship is be the best that it can be, including the singing of praise. But the point is that the ministry of the Word is also worship. And in fact, hearing and responding to God's words, the highest form of worship, because listen, insofar as the preacher is actually is, is accurately explaining to you what God's word says, you're listening to God speak to you. And shouldn't we listen to God's word with an attitude of worship and reverence and faith and obedience? It's the highest act of worship. J.I. Packer put it this way, congregations never honor God more then by reverently listening to his word with a full purpose of praising and obeying him once they see what he has done and is doing and what they are called to do. The great reformer Martin Luther said the same thing when he wrote long ago, the highest worship of God is the preaching of the word. And then thirdly and lastly, let us learn from what we've seen this morning that the ministry of the Word ought to be the main consideration when it comes to choosing a church. If the ministry of the Word is to be foundational and central in the life of the church, then surely more than anything else, a faithful preaching ministry should be our greatest concern when choosing a church for ourselves and our families. I'm not saying it should be the only concern. There are other legitimate concerns, important concerns, Uh, other things that are important in the life of the church, but not one of them is more important than this. And there is nothing else for which it's worth sacrificing. It's amazing sometimes to hear the reasons that people will give for why they go to a particular church, why they choose the church that they go to. The choice is often made for every other reason than that which should be the, the main concern. Some want a large church. Some prefer a small church. Some want a church with a good nursery, others with a well-developed children's program, youth ministry. The big thing nowadays seems to be the music program. Now, the, you know, the preaching, you know, the preaching's really not very good. I mean, honestly, I mean, it, it is kind of off. It's unsound at certain points, but boy, the music is wonderful. There are some who even say, we're going to let the children decide where we go to church. Our biggest concern is that the children like it. And that they have a lot of friends there. Now, I'm not saying that none of those things are to be considered at all, though some of them are important, though secondary. But what every Christian ought to be saying is this, no matter what else may or may not be true of the church we choose, I want to make absolutely certain that I and my family are in a place 
where the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified is clearly proclaimed and where the word of God is faithfully and accurately expounded and applied by God-called and gifted men. That's the one thing that's most important that we will never be willing to sacrifice. Well, may God help us to be an Antioch church. May God help us in a time of growth where our church has been growing. I, you know, some, I wanted to say, thankfully, God hasn't added 3,000 souls. That wouldn't be right to say that. I wish you would add 3,000 souls. But with blessing comes more work. It comes more ch- I imagine some of those folks in uh, Jerusalem were thinking, boy, I sure miss the good old days when it was just 120 of us in the upper room. And, we, you know, we all knew each other really well and we were all intimately. I, I imagine they had some thoughts like that. Maybe they did. Were they to say, well, you 3,000 people, that's too much. You go away. We don't want God to add to the church. We can't do that. Can't do that. So we have to adapt, right? We have to expand the administrative uh, uh, ministry of the church. More people have to be involved. The pastors can't do everything in the life of the church, right? And so there was the setting apart of men, and there's the developing of the gifts that God's given to his people. But at the same time, brothers and sisters, may God help us to be committed to these things. If God should be pleased to bless our church planting efforts up north, may that church as well be a church that, among other things, that we'll look at later, is built upon and devoted to the public ministry of the Word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your Word today. We thank you for its simplicity, its straightforwardness, its clarity. Help us to be committed to these things, Lord to never waver from them in any degree. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to establish us here as a church and that we might more and more reflect uh, the good things that we see exhibited in the church in Antioch. We pray that for the church planting effort as well. And Lord, we pray for those among us this morning who are unconverted and outside of Christ. We pray you would open their eyes to see their sinful lost condition that they can do nothing to save themselves but we pray also that you would help them to see and to believe the good news that Jesus Christ the son of God came to earth that he suffered and died upon the cross as our substitute paying in his suffering and death the debt we owe to the justice of God being raised from the dead demonstrating that that sacrifice was accepted that you're willing to receive all who will come to him by faith, repenting of their sins, casting all their hope upon him for salvation. Lord, we pray that even today you would save sinners in our midst. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.